My name is Will Lewis. I'm 89 years old, and I guess I'm a veteran of mass communications. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. Our guest today is Will Lewis, veteran public broadcaster, president emeritus of the Los Angeles Press Club. His career in public radio touched many lives, including my own. When I worked for Will in the 1960s, WBUR-FM in Boston, at age 89, Will Lewis still volunteers as a judge of -of out-of-state press club contests for the L.A. Press Club. You wrote me that your life in the media started when you were 14. What happened then? I uh, was interested in comedy writing. At the age of 12, I was isolated in my bedroom for a year. They suspected I had a possibility of having rheumatic fever, and I listened to the radio from 7 o'clock in the morning until uh, 10, 11 o'clock at night. And I was particularly taken by the comedy shows, Jack Benny and Fred Allen and the rest. I wanted to be a comedy writer. At at the age of 14, I just picked up the phone and uh, called the uh, local uh, wake-up disc jockey at WITH in Baltimore, an AM station that I could barely hear in the suburbs where I lived in Baltimore. said, I, I, I could help him. And he said, uh, well, he said, bring it. This was on a Wednesday. He said, bring it down on Saturday morning and I'll take a look at it. So I hadn't, I hadn't written anything for him. So between then and Saturday, I strung some stuff together and um, brought it to him on a Saturday. And he hired me $10 a week. How many dollars? $10 a week and all I could write. Will Lewis was the son of Henry Lewis, a World War II veteran who earned two Purple Hearts. Henry Lewis couldn't take the cold in Baltimore after the war and moved his family to Miami, Florida. During the Korean War, Will became a Marine, serving at Camp Pendleton near San Diego, California. Yeah, I was in uh, in a tent camp. Uh, and at Camp Pendleton, then Camp 3, and we were part of the 3rd Marine Brigade. It was dusty, and uh, I I worked in the office. So uh, my MOS was good for as an an office clerk, clerk typist, or a mail clerk. And uh, I said to my gunny sergeant, he had control over where people went. He would get orders in requesting personnel and other units. So I said to him one day, I said, you know, I could be in a tent camp in, a tent in, in, in Korea and as a clerk typist and making, I, I forget, you, you made more money in a combat zone than you did in the United States. So he said, okay. And then one day he said to me, he says, uh, you, you're a clerk typist, but you are, you, your MOS is also a mail clerk. He said, I can send you over to Korea as a mail clerk, and that's what he did. And that's what I did the first couple of months I was there. About halfway through my uh, tour of duty, I saw and noticed on the uh, bulletin board that they were looking for an editor of the 1st Marine Division newspaper in the field called The First Word. I applied for that. I could type um, 15 words a minute. I guess that was the main prerequisite. I had some journalism experience in high school. In fact, when you were 
in Korea and you're doing journalism, you wanted to volunteer to join the fight, but your your sergeant told you that you couldn't go. Well, that's right. They were, you know, uh, those were the days towards the end of the war when they were uh, writing an armistice. And uh, they wanted to get uh, hold as much land as possible. And the Chinese were uh, attacking uh, the mountain peaks that the, the Marines had held. Mountains, they called them, uh, the, they were the Nevada mountains. There was Reno, Las Vegas. And every day uh, we reported hundreds of Marines that, were, that lost their lives holding those uh, mountaintops. So one day, they, uh, one of the sergeants came into the area looking for volunteers. We were in a headquarters unit behind the lines, so we weren't in any danger at all to speak about. I felt kind of guilty. Here I was doing journalism, so I volunteered. And then my sergeant, he actually shook me. He grabbed me by my shoulders, and, and he shook me and, and said, in effect, you stupid SOB, uh, you could get killed. And not only that, I don't have enough time to train somebody else to do your job. <laughs> you finished your Korean tour of duty as editor of of, of the first word, as you said. You first also Korean did a program Korean. for the ABC radio network called Marines in Review. Well, that's when we came back. Because now I, I, I had the, the journalism MOS. I applied uh, for the, uh, the radio show that they did weekly over the ABC radio network. They, they taped it in a theater, Camp Pendleton. It's a fairly elaborate program. It, uh, we, we had a full uh, jazz band, female singer. We did interviews. And we did uh, uh, dramatic sketches mm-hmm. based on historical Marine Adventures. After getting media experience with the Marines, Will Lewis studied American civilization at Miami University, then moved north to Boston University, where he enrolled in the 16-millimeter film production course at BU. He helped pay for his coursework by selling film clips to news departments at Boston television stations. And in the mid-1960s, Will Lewis was tapped to be the manager of Boston University's FM radio station, WBUR. The FM station had been run by BU students, but Will was tasked with making WBUR a radio station operated by professionals and students. I'd been one of the student volunteers at WBUR and transitioned to being an employee. I worked for you, as I recall, in 1967 and maybe some of 1968 at Boston University's FM radio station, WBUR, which today is a really big deal in uh, national public radio. (laughs) But as I recall, you were brought in to transition WBUR-FM from a student a dominated operation to a professional, I don't even know if they had the word then, public radio station. Is, is that well, they true? Didn't have, they, they didn't have the word public radio. They, had, they We called 
they, we called us educational radio stations. And we were a member of the National Association of Educational Broadcasters. Tape Network, was called, which was called National Educational Radio. You became the manager of WBUR. Yes, I was transitioning from uh, commercial television. I did a year as uh, the off-the-air news director of WISH-TV, a CBS affiliate in Indianapolis. Prior to that, I had a CBS News fellowship that I earned while I was at the University of Florida. And that took me to New York City, where I had a year at Columbia University. So you're getting a lot of, I don't know, valuable experience. You're becoming very skilled in different kinds of media. As I look back, yeah, we were the precursor of National Public Radio, National Educational Radio Network. And I produced programs for them uh, while I was at WVUR. At the University of Florida, I'm running their uh, tape library. And I turned that into a sort of kind of a powerhouse. We had uh, distribution to a program that I was producing called My Florida Garden with two Mm -hmm. uh, professors from the School of Agriculture. Mm -hmm. And that was running on more than 200 commercial radio stations Mm -hmm. all throughout Florida. Here's another one of my memories. In 1967, I believe you're at WBUR as the general manager, and the newspapers in Boston go on strike. And you invited the reporters, I believe from all of them, from the Globe, the Record American, the Herald Traveler of the day, to come to WBUR every night for a five-hour program, the newspaper of the air. Is that true? partially true. Uh, they actually didn't come to the station. They actually sent copy. They, they were actually, the Boston Globe was, the reporters weren't laid off, but they, they had them uh, write copy as if they were going to uh, publish. And, I, and uh, they would send that copy over to the radio station. And then you read it on the air? Is that the deal? Right. And attribute it. Where I come in, if you remember, was when the strike was settled, I believe it was in the summer, you hired me to host and produce an hour-long newspaper of the air, weeknights, with contributions from others. Yes, so that the the newspaper of the air was a precursor uh, of your program. This could be very hurtful to me. But do you actually remember hiring me? Or, I mean, do you remember me at all from this time? I remember you. Yeah, I, I, I vaguely I remember the name. Now, my recollection is this, and this may be completely off base. My wife, I was married at the time. I'd been going to Boston U studying English, actually. And my wife had become a typing teacher, Mary Cutmore. You said to me something to the effect, well... I don't really have anything in the budget to pay a reporter. I could justify paying a typist. So I recall you paid her instead of me. (laughs) It's very possible. I vaguely remember parts of the time I was at the station and vividly remember others. I recall making $35 a week for Newspaper of the Air. The tops I made at the in Baltimore, it was $12 a week. <laughs> okay. Going on at the same time, we, with this newspaper of the air going from uh, many hours with the copy from the newspapers that are on strike to me doing an hour-long show, I also remember sitting in a recording studio at WBUR in Boston 
where you brought in a line from Washington so we could record the hearings in 1967 on creation of the Public Broadcasting Act. And you're much involved in that. Can you explain what you did? I remember that fairly vividly, yeah. I was on the board of directors of the uh, National Association of Educational Broadcasters. We had a television uh, wing and a radio wing. The bill that Johnson was going to eventually get on his desk was called the Public Television Act of 1967. Of course, the radio people, including me, were saying to the TV people, why isn't it the Public Broadcasting Act? Why isn't it radio and television? And they said, be patient. When we get in, we'll pull you in under the tent. The executive director of the the public radio section, can't think of his name right now, but anyhow, he turned to the uh, executive director uh, of the television division and said, how many stations do you have? I think he had 12 stations at the time. And he says, well, we have 120. If we don't get in to this act, we're going to pull those 120 stations and you're not going to be left with anything except 12 stations at the uh, National Association of Educational Broadcasters. And that kind of uh, brought them to their senses and we were then included in the act. Actually, we were penciled in <laughs> to, the, <laughs> to the final version of the act at the last minute. In fact, you were there when President Lyndon Johnson signed the Public Broadcasting Act at the White House. That's correct. Yeah, the story I tell is we were all uh, on a plane that we took. We took off in a uh, a prop, a propeller plane at that time. I think because I think the uh, the jets that were just coming in were too expensive, and we were flying to our convention in Denver. So, so, you know, the board of the, of the association. So we were on the, uh, uh, the plane, and I think we, we flew all night and arrived the next morning in Denver. And somebody came to the plane and said, stay on the plane. Uh, President Johnson wants you back in Washington tomorrow morning, 9 o'clock, for the signing of the Public Broadcasting Act of 1967. And we did. I have a picture of that signing, and if you if you zero in on me and and you and you blow it up, you'll see I need a shave. By 1968, I had left WBUR for a commercial radio station job. In the early 1970s, Will Lewis recalls he was fired from being WBUR's manager after John Silver became Boston University's president. President John Silver took over the university, and he didn't really want any, uh, anything to do with the kind of station that we had at the time. Actually, I was fired because I had bought a, uh, a stereo uh, exciter for our transmitter so we could broadcast in stereo. I thought we were at a great disadvantage with, to WGVH, which also did class, a lot of classical music because we, we, we couldn't broadcast in stereo. Mm-hmm. That and the many other things, and I was fired. The week I was fired, I was actually uh, in Washington for an, another convention. I met a guy who uh, was a big mucky muck at the Pacifica Foundation, and he said, we have an opening at KPFK in Los Angeles. Why don't you let me fly you over there? 
And I said, no, I can't do that. I said, but I, uh, I will, uh, you know, visit you at the first time I can get. So I went back to the station and I think a couple of weeks later, I flew out to Los Angeles and got the job. So that was all during that period where uh, they allowed me to stay at the college, Boston University, and uh, look for another job. They were at mm-hmm. least courteous about that. Will Lewis was hired by Pacifica Radio on the West Coast to manage Pacifica's powerful, listener-supported, free speech-advocating radio station, KPFK, in Los Angeles. In 1974... KPFK aired tapes left off for them outside the station by the violent Symbionese Liberation Army, who had kidnapped media heiress Patty Hearst, killed people, and robbed banks. Will Lewis refused to hand over the Symbionese Liberation Army tapes to the FBI, and Lewis ended up going to jail. Prior to receiving the tape. We printed in our program guide a notice to underground groups saying that we protected our sources in our newsroom and that we would protect any communication between uh, an organization and ourselves. So I felt obligated at two levels. We we broadcast the tape, but we did that at a a news conference, and the tape was uh, heard all over the United States broadcast live on the ABC uh, radio network and uh, and of course everybody uh, you know all the networks had their cameras there but I, I felt obligated uh, not to turn over the original tape because what they wanted was the wrappings they wanted the the string it was uh, wrapped you know that it was used to secure the package the paper of the package and I felt that that was an intrusion and in the operation of our newsroom, and violated uh, what we had published to encourage the free flow of information from underground groups. How long were you in jail, and how did you get out? Sixteen days. I got out. I mean, I didn't get out. But on the 4th of July, Justice... Um, uh, Will, I think it's William Douglas. That's right. William O. Douglas. A very liberal... Uh, member of the Supreme Court came in on the 4th of July and freed me. He wrote in the uh, in the citation uh, that no reporter should linger in jail while they were litigating their uh, First Amendment rights. Ultimately, KPFK did give up the Symbionese Liberation Army tapes to the FBI. Lewis was at KPFK in Los Angeles about six years. His next job in public radio was Santa Monica College and their educational radio station, KCRW-FM. There, Will Lewis advocated moving the station tower to a mountain to increase coverage of the Los Angeles area. And Will brought with him skills he had learned at Pacifica Radio in listener fundraising. Will Lewis was at KCRW for over 30 years. He was elected president of the Los Angeles Press Club, a volunteer position. He is now the club's president emeritus. How is Will Lewis today? He lives in a rented home. He's 89 years old. And 
is a paraplegic. I had a, uh, or have, a, a growth on, on my spine. It's a benign growth. It interferes with the messages, and uh, I am paralyzed effectively from the uh, waist down. And also, your wife, Beverly, is suffering from advanced stages of Alzheimer's disease? Yes. It's a terrible disease. Uh, she spends most of her time in our room now, watches television. She's extremely isolated from everybody. She very seldom comes out of our room. If I go in her room and, and talk to her, she's very, uh, oh, I'd say she's in the now, have a pleasant conversation. She remembers things from the past. She won't remember the fact that we had a conversation. Yes, it's terrible. She was very active in a group, and uh, she gradually uh, left that group, and then she doesn't even think about it anymore. Beverly's job in Los Angeles was as a typist. She used to type movie scripts and even books such as The Exorcist for their authors. Will and Beverly's pensions have been exhausted paying for home care. Money from the sale of their house is also gone. Will has created a GoFundMe campaign, which he hopes can raise enough money to make up for a year in the red. My interview with Will Lewis was scheduled through Robert, one of his five sons. Yes, he's running my uh, GoFundMe site. He does a, I do the rough draft and he uh, rewrites it. He's, he's a sports information director at uh, Pasadena City College. Are you bitter? No. Why should I be bitter? I'm 89 years old. <laughs> I'm still alive. Um, I'm in actually fairly good health other than the paralysis. How would you describe your life today? That's a good question. Um, I was spending most of my time trying to figure out how to to stay above water, who I could pay and who I couldn't pay or shouldn't pay or don't pay this month or never pay that month. It was a constant juggling act. So the GoFundMe has released that, some of that tension. But uh, now I, I look at the GoFundMe page as a, as a project. When, when should I update? What should I say? What more pictures should I put on there, and so on. I tried to, it's, it hasn't been doing very well lately. It did terrific the first two months. Mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, for example, all three of the general managers who took over WBUR when I left contributed. I thought that was very nice. I was going to ask you, who were they? You remember yeah, now you're asking an 89-year-old man to pull out the... Uh, they will come to me when, when we hang up. Well, Will Lewis, it's been a great pleasure talking with you after all these years. Is there anything else you'd like to say? No, I think we covered, uh, covered it. I, I think a very eventful uh, life, and uh, I've been, it's, it's terrific to be able to, to do what you enjoy. And you have done what you enjoy for much of your life. I would say for most of my life. The one thing that occurred to me, knowing what you did at WBUR, you in a sense did the same thing for the Pacifica station and for KCRW. You kind of specialized in starting public radio. Right. Well, yes, that's true, too. 
but also looking at my life. I was among the people who uh, invented television news. Really? Yeah, people didn't know what television. When I when I was at uh, going to Boston University, learning sixteen millimeter film production, I was a uh, I paid some of my way, of course, through the GI Bill and and some of my expenses freelancing. Uh, I had a uh, a sixteen millimeter uh, camera, Bell and Hal. I'd go out and shoot events with another friend uh, who had a Bolex camera. We'd shoot the, there's two stations in town, so we would shoot every event double. So we could just cut the film in half and send them half, one station half and the other station the other half. Anyhow, from those days to, uh, I, I interned at WGBH in Boston, their FM station, I learned tape editing. But at the same time, I got my, uh, my master's uh, by shooting a film about how to produce uh, an educational television show. Called, uh, so I can remember the, the woman who had, it was a nature show, Mary Lou Grimes. And that became the, the most rented film, a distributed film by WGBH, which, is a, which was a powerhouse then, is a powerhouse now in their, in their history. Voice from the Past. This historian's podcast episode has been a chance for me to relive days over 50 years ago when I worked for Will Lewis at WBUR-FM in Boston. He was and is quite a spellbinder. Will is somebody you pay attention to, and I wish him and his wife and family the best as they try to navigate the financial hurdles of American medicine. I'm trying to picture what WBUR in Boston looked like 53 years ago. It's in a new location now, befitting its status as one of the top NPR stations in the country, the new location still at Boston University. When I was there, WBUR was on the third floor of, I want to say, 640 Commonwealth Avenue. I think that building's still there. Back in 1967, their broadcasting tower was on top of that three-story building, not very high up. Needless to say, the tower was moved to improve coverage. I used to occupy an inner cubicle that was the station newsroom. We had an AP teletype, I do believe, maybe UPI, at least three studios. One studio where I spent a lot of time was near the transmitter, and it's where I listened, for example, to the audio feed that Will had piped in from Washington from the 1967 Public Broadcasting Act hearings taking place in Washington. I did a lot of tape editing for that story, a very manual cut and apply splicing tape process that has been replaced, thank goodness, by computer editing. My first semester at Boston U and WBUR was pre-Will Lewis in the fall of 1963, the year of the assassination of President Kennedy. WBUR's then-student staff rose to that occasion. I can still see my friend Jim Holzer, a Schenectady native, writing the word reaction on the blackboard and dispatching students to get recordings all over town. I went in tandem with a man named Tom McNiff, who actually was working, I think, even at the time for UPI. We recorded people on the street. We couldn't get inside the Ritz-Carlton Hotel because we weren't wearing ties. 
I also did an hour-long weekly talk show at WBUR called Conference Call. We even got a write-up in a Boston newspaper for a show we did called Turning the Tables on the Talkers with three Boston radio talk hosts, the other Bob Kennedy from WBZ, Fred Gale of WNAC, and Jim Westover at WEEI. Come to think of it, I used to produce Jim Westover's show occasionally when I worked part-time at WEEI, but that's a different story. You've been listening to The Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore.